Hi, and welcome to Found, TechCrunch's premier podcast, where we tell you the stories behind the startups. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington, and joining me, as always, is the offset to my horrible carbon footprint. Jordan Crook, I always get to be the good guy in the in the duality of, of man that you, That's how that we you work. put up on this premier podcast. We're mythic characters, and you're... You represent all good and I represent all evil. And yes, it is a premier podcast. There's no other contenders that could claim such a thing. Mm-mm. Nope. I'm no gonna name them. That's, that's where the rivalry has gotten it. to now. Don't even say the name of it. It's Equity. It's Equity. If you're a tech, if you're a tech crunch fan, go listen to Equity as well. Come on. Yeah, or just keep listening here and maybe equity when you get time when you're done with the found library. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And here we have something they don't have, which is great guests. And this week we've got <laughs> Kentaro Kawamore from Persephone. So Persephone is an accounting platform, but not your typical accounting platform. It basically accounts for your carbon footprint and lets the companies large and small know if they're actually being as ecological as they're aiming to be so it keeps track of endeavors they're doing to you know reduce their footprint but also their actual output and their actual impact on the environment and compares those things in much the same way that a financial accounting platform looks at your books and says hey are you actually making more money than you're spending or is that not happening (laughs) (laughs) like across the same standards like we the cool thing is like we have math that is real numbers Uh and so one company can say we're going to reduce by 50 percent another company could say by 25 percent we're going to do it these ways you know the 25 percent or might be more just based on the standards that persephone uses so it's pretty cool the idea of having it kind of like set across something real and true yeah and i think the more pessimistic among our audience might be saying well why would anyone want that because They've been lying about this for years and getting away with it, and it's been great. And there's a few different reasons why that's not really the way that people can do business anymore. But Kentaro is much better at explaining it than I am. So let's go ahead and talk to him and let him tell you all about Persephone and the new green economy. Hey, Kentaro. Hey, Daryl. Thanks for having me back. Yes. Yeah. I do want to say right up front because I feel we like should we should be, be fully honest. transparent about this. Otherwise, <laughs> it's going to get weird. <laughs> no, and we, and we need to be accountable since Persephone is all about accountability. We did record this episode previously and just because of technical errors with the recording qualities, we unfortunately lost that entire episode. So as Kentaro mentioned, he's back again which we're thrilled about. It's been some time. It's going to be, my brain is, I think my RAM has like, I don't know, two weeks or something. And then it just entirely flushes. So like, I feel like it's going to be new to me. (laughs) And one of my technical issues was was that I only heard like popping and fuzz for most of our episodes. I literally don't remember because I wasn't there. All right. Actually, like a lot has happened in the interim, Kentaro, that like has reinforced the need for Persephone. Just for me personally, like we ran a space event and tons of people were talking about ESG and how they're all in the ESG business now. And, uh, you know, I, we talked about it last time and it's a great time to be in this business. But I digress. Let's let you explain what Persephone is for our audience who may not know. Sure thing. And yeah, ESG right now is like digital transformation six years ago and then blockchain after that. Like if you don't have that in your business, then you're probably missing out. So Persephone, we are a climate management and accounting platform. Venture backed, we've raised about $120 million to date. We are headquartered in Tempe, Arizona, but a very, very global business. I think we have presence now in nine different countries, about 180 people. And we're a SaaS pure play company, and we've built a platform that helps ingest and manage all of the data required for companies and financial institutions to disclose their climate posture. And that includes their carbon footprint, but it includes a couple of other things as well, like their trajectory toward achieving net zero according to the Paris Agreement and a few other things. That's great. Like you mentioned, it's kind of like de rigueur now for companies. And I think like we saw the trend and we saw it very close up, me and Jordan and TechCrunch, because it became a thing where you would have, you know, all the major tech companies falling over one another to be like, we will be 
carbon net neutral by year whatever or will be water neutral i think is the newest thing right like by year whatever it just seemed like there was this cascade and it was like everybody has to get in on this but for a while it was just like okay i mean you got a nice blog post that you've presented us and you seem pretty sincere about it but how do we know (laughs) yeah like and how would we know later like the year comes around and it's like well, I'm looking at the building. Yeah, you could just be like, <laughs> we did it. Yeah, like, we could be net, net neutral right now for all anyone knows, yeah. right? And there's a bunch of that going on. Yeah, I mean, it's like mm. you remember when AI was in, in the venture world, right? Every company yeah. was an AI company. And yeah, every company now is trying to be a climate company. Hey, look, it's super positive. We're going to see a lot of bad stuff happen as a result of that. Like, I'm convinced you're going to see the next WeWork type debacle when it comes to things like carbon offsets and those sorts of things. Right. There's a ton of money in demand. There's going to be a ton of people building really great stuff, but you're going to see some less than ideal scenarios. And we kind of call that greenwashing 2.0. I mean, it feels a little bit too like there's the whole PR blitz that was happening for a long time of like, we do this and we do that and look how great it all is. It feels like that greenwashing 2.0 is more pervasive now in terms of like the transparency bit that you guys are doing as well, right? Like, I don't know if this is new or if I'm just literally the least observant person on the planet, but like Amazon now has... Like Mm. a little tag, right? Like if you're getting something that's, I don't know what they call it, green, proven, sustainable or something like that. I don't know what it is. But again, it's like you're Amazon. Like I don't really trust (laughs) you that much because you're Amazon. They've they've had that thing too where they did like, they sent out the boxes and said like, this this box uses however much less. This box belonged to Daryl just a week ago. They don't do that, do they? But I mean, like, roughly equivalent, right? It's like mostly recycled material or whatever. I think we talked a bit last time about the Logitech thing. Like Logitech is, and a lot of consumer electronic makers now put a little label that's kind of like the dolphin-free tuna label. Oh, we all know how that went. The dolphin-free tuna label. I mean, maybe, Kintara, you can tell us like how much of this is theater and how much of this is people genuinely getting their act together. Are there two people in an office who are taking like $250 checks to send out a sticker like it is with Dolphin Free Tuna? There's definitely some of that. And yeah, I'll give you kind of the macro and we can hone in from there. So, you know, at a macro level, this is no coincidence, right? This is a secular shift, just like the population in most developed countries is moving primarily from agricultural country-based sort of demographics into the city. When that happens, the demographics shift more democratic and left-leaning. And over Mm -hmm. time, we get to this point that we're at today, the importance of political and economical sort of priorities now include climate for the first time. And also, you know, it's devastating, but part of the reason that's the case is because climate change is real now. 20 years ago, when Vice President Gore put out The Inconvenient Truth, it was this like specter that you couldn't imagine. And now there's a once in a century storm, you know, in Texas, knocking out power every year. And like, yeah. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why is it a once in a century storm every year? Right. So climate change is becoming real as one piece. As part of that demographic shift, consumers have demonstrated a willingness to pay a premium, what some call the green premium, for greener and more sustainable products. That, of course, in the capital engine that is our society, creates a demand for product that companies are looking to go fill. But concurrently, you've had a really important development happen in the market, which is directly in line with why we're seeing regulatory movement now. And that is very left-leaning LP constituencies in California. So think the teachers' pension funds, the Canadian pension funds, the Norwegian pension funds, gone to their asset managers, the private equity, the VC firms they've invested in over the last few years. They're now requiring climate disclosures from those asset managers. So then you have a bit of a domino effect. The asset managers and the GPs now have to go to their portfolio companies and say, what are you doing to get greener? I need your climate disclosure in order for me to create my climate disclosure. And that's creating a lot of network effects on sort of both sides of the pressure point one on the capital stack, one on the consumer side. So there's a lot of forces sort of in the market happening that's forcing companies to go do this. And the last big one is the regulatory side. The SEC, right, we've all seen Chairman Gensler has been really vocal and active in either pushing or about to push regulation for the crypto space, for the SPAC space. Same thing is happening here because Mm -hmm. so many companies are coming out and making climate claims. The SEC now views it as their duty to protect investors that if BlackRock, who today coincidentally dropped their latest CEO letter, where climate again is at the forefront, or anybody else is making climate claims, 
that there needs to be a mechanism to pay trust, like you guys mentioned earlier, in those disclosures because they are tantamount now to financial disclosures. One of the things that I was curious about, like, you know, if all of these different forces are working together, right, to kind of ask for a standard bearer or like a trustworthy layer for this information, then for you, what is the single biggest scale up moment that you could have? Like, would it be the SEC or would it be some big customer like an Amazon or like what would be the big break moment, you know, that would instantly scale you up? It's definitely compliance. So it's definitely regulation. So a great example is three weeks ago when we were in 2021, only 200 companies globally were required to disclose their footprint according to a financial regulator. That was in New Zealand. Fast forward now, by March, there's going to be 5,500 companies, 4,000 of those coming from Japan, mandated by their financial regulator to disclose their footprint. It's expected that the SEC is going to announce their disclosure requirement by the end of this quarter. And so the SEC announces it, and all of a sudden you have now 5,500 U.S. public company CFOs that need a solution yesterday. So our scale-up moments are really interesting because in the early days of our journey, you know, if you're an investor looking at Persephone, it's high risk because you don't have yeah. you don't have certainty around this regulation coming down the pipe today almost completely de-risk because it's become such a global phenomenon and a near certainty that it's going to happen in almost every major regulatory environment. So is that like wait and see for you? Or are there things that you're doing where you're having conversations with regulatory bodies like, hey, like you should do this now and not in six months. And this should be at the, you know, is that something that you have the kind of like heft to throw around into in the first place? Or you just sit back and wait, it's going to happen. And when it happens, we we make it big. We definitely can't afford to wait and see you know, there's a few that we can disclose publicly. We have been very closely working with regulators and policymakers around the world to help build these regulations. You know, for example, one we can disclose is in the EU. Commission is going to be one of the most important governing bodies around a very specific climate disclosure framework. And our chief sustainability officer is part of that working group officially has been helping them do that. Some of the other agencies we help, you know, don't necessarily want us to advertise that. But yeah, you can very, very engage globally. A lot of that has to do with one of the earliest moves we made as a company is we brought the foremost minds and experts from the sustainability standard setting world, the framework world. Daryl, you mentioned the EPA. Tamar, chief sustainability officer, worked in the Senate, literally wrote part of the Clean Air Act and was a section chief at the EPA. So super critical that we, we kind of brought the influencers and the policymakers into Persephone early. Yeah, it also seems like both sides of the market are coming to it at the same time. It's not even like a thing where you need to wait for the company to mature for this to be on their list because of the pressure from LPs, right? Like that's a huge, quiet source of all kinds of stuff that I don't think a lot of people realized. And then honestly, like I only realized talking to people on this podcast and and at TechCrunch generally, right? Like LPs have crazy rules and those rules have long dictated kind of like what is considered the moral edge of or compass of companies out in the market, right? Like we saw another another example totally separate from this one is the OnlyFans debacle, right? Like they were apparently going out looking for a big round and LPs were like, no sex businesses, you can't, your fund can't invest in that. And so it was kind of off the table and they went all over the place and then went back to their original business model and said, we're not doing this anymore, right? But that was one of the rare times where that power kind of comes to the fore, right? But it's there and it's very interesting to me that it's now shifting it seems like politically left, at least in terms of this one area or ideology, right? But it does make sense when you talk about the bodies that hold a lot of the power, right? Like the teachers union here in Ontario is is a massive one, right? And they're people who by and large think climate change is a problem. I don't think that's controversial to say, but yeah, that's great for you because it's coming from the earliest stages to the latest stages, right? Yeah. Look, I often say capitalism created the climate crisis and it's going to fix it. Hmm. And not everybody agrees with that. But to your point, a regulation coming out, a CFO or a CEO and a board looks at that and goes, oh, this is another you know license to operate kind of thing that I just have to do. But you want to get somebody moving and spending money on compliance? Threaten their wallets, exactly to your yeah. point. So when a CFO gets the call from BlackRock, it's actually a letter. They get a letter usually annually. <laughs> and it says, you need to disclose your footprint and you need to provide these specific climate aligned disclosure frameworks. And if you don't, we may drop you from this ESG index. And if that happens, that CFO can now very clearly articulate to the board and CEO that says, 
if I lose 3% of my float, if I'm a public company, for example, yeah. this is bad news. Or yeah. in Silicon Valley, right? If the fundraising environment is so competitive, if one tier one VC fund goes to the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, like you just talked about, says, I'm going to raise capital, but I refuse to give you climate disclosures. But the next one says, I'll do it. And I'm going to lean really heavily into this. And I'm going to force my companies to decarbonize. Yeah, they're, they're starting to make those capital allocation decisions differently. This is all like hella mathy, Kentaro, right? We're talking financial <laughs> math. We're talking climate math. It's a lot. So like, who are you that you know all this math? Because it feels like you got your science brain and your banker brain going at the same time, which is impressive. How did you get there? I was a hella mathlete in high school. So <laughs> that was uh, the first part. Of, no, I'm joking. Yeah. So I, uh, you're right. You know, I kind of live in both the financial worlds and in the operating world at the same time. So I'm an enterprise software guy first and foremost, but I did stints in the energy sector at a large natural gas producer. And you want to get a hell of an education about a high emissions environment, go work at a company that produces natural gas. And that was one of the reasons that I went to go work there. I kind of looked at the other side and it helped me figure out how exactly that world works. And then I did a stint in private equity and VC, still a very active investor today. I've been an active trader since I was in my teens. So I just love equity markets. And so that's helped me a lot. But about 50% of our business today comes from the large global banks and private equities. You know, So we work very heavily within that world. And if you want to do business there, you definitely have to speak their language. That's why it seems as I'm listening to it, and I'm not an expert in this area. I'm like, you're the one to do this because I don't, I don't think someone who comes from it primarily from one of the other areas involved, like has necessarily the authority to go and win this in the right way. Right. Like, I feel like if your background was primarily from the scientific side or primarily from even just whatever, the entrepreneurial startup world side. I think you would come at this the wrong way, but it seems like you're speaking everyone's language where they're instantly like, this This all makes sense to me already. I understand all of this from my experience with it. Like you said, like on the sustainability from a capital perspective side. So I can easily integrate this into my existing thing. Because it sounds like the people you're talking to are the CFOs, right? Like you're not talking to, or or are you talking to like more like, chief sustainability officers, or is that even really a thing? Or is it more the, the financial side that's making these decisions? Yeah. First of all, thank you. You just gave me the exact opening because you know I like to keep it spicy and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull on a thread that you just created for me. But to answer your sure. questions first, yeah, absolutely. You know, We sell to CFOs and GPs first and foremost. And in banking, it's interesting. There's a new role that's popped up that's you know really called sustainable finance these days. But you're also seeing the emergence of a new type of role that's really ESG. And that is an offshoot of an investor compliance and an IR function, first and foremost. And yeah, the, what I was referencing as the string to pull there, I love to tell this story because if you're a VC and you're looking at how do I break into this space and you just default to your de facto, I'm going to fund a team of software engineers that came from big tech or that come from the SaaS background, guess what? Just because you have a background building SaaS platforms and businesses selling to other tech, a CFO or a GP couldn't care less. They right. want to know that you understand public markets, compliance, regulatory issues. And I was an officer at a Fortune 500 public company. It gives you, thankfully, a lot of credibility. I would not be able to do what I do if I didn't also assemble a team that could speak to the sustainability frameworks. And Tim, our sustainability officer I referenced, he's been doing this for 40 years. I mean, yeah. Talk about a sustainability OG, right? From the earliest days of the EPA. That's who those buyers want to talk to. Yeah, for as much as the business seems to like upend traditional models of doing things, I think it really does that. But it's also like, it's not something where you're the move fast and break things approach seems to be effective, right? Like you can't pull an Uber and just like, we're launching our rideshare program in this market and screw the municipal regulators. You can't just go in and be like, look, <laughs> we're tracking your carbon footprint and we don't give who <laughs> like it doesn't work at all definitely does not guns blazing very cowboy vibes no like it's interesting that you are the defensibility like no offense or anything but like the idea itself isn't that revolutionary right like there have to be all kinds of people all over the place thinking like oh well if there was just a framework right to like measure it and then we all agreed upon it that would be a big deal and regulatory is going that way right so it's interesting that you and your team are like the moat almost like i don't know how yeah like team is important and that's what investors are looking for and you know 
one person can make something better than another person can if they're trying to build the same thing. But it seems so heavily weighted in team's direction in terms of your defensibility and kind of like why you can be a winner. You're spot on. This is the third iteration of an attempt for the carbon accounting market to come into existence. The other two flamed out and died quite obviously, or else they would be here today and I wouldn't be. But yeah, to your point, you know, this is the VC business currently, I think. There is no such thing as a novel idea anymore. There's no such thing as, you know, a moat that can't be replicated quickly by other players that are well capitalized. You know, ideas are a dime a dozen, but the team to go execute it with the right plan, that's the rarest commodity in all of startups and venture today. And you know, we lean heavily into that. I mean, we talk about talent density in our company probably above any other concepts, you know, as we're growing this thing. Since you're a found listener, I'm going to bet you're also pretty interested in startups and technology. Great news. We're going to give you an offer for 25% off a subscription to TechCrunch Plus. TC Plus is our premium product. And what you get there are deep dive interviews with some of the best startup founders and investors in the industry. You get surveys of different investors in different areas of expertise and geographies. You get market maps of opportunities in new and emerging industries. And you get deep dive looks at some of the hottest startups out there. You can subscribe to TechCrunch Plus at TechCrunchPlus.com. That's probably the easiest way to get there. Or if you're already on TechCrunch, just follow the links for TechCrunch Plus and you'll get a prompt to subscribe. Once you're there, just enter the code, which is found, the name of this podcast, during checkout, and you'll get 25% off a one-year TechCrunch Plus subscription. Are you a super duper huge fan of Found the Podcast? We have big news for you. So we're going to start doing live recordings where you can actually come hang out with us. We always do this podcast on video, but we're going to show that video to the world. Yes. And it's going to start on February 17th. We're going to be doing it every other Thursday. Our sister podcast, Equity, is also going to be doing that on their alternating Thursdays. All the podcasts from TechCrunch together well separate but yeah the TechCrunch podcasts are coming to you live so that means you'll get to listen to new episodes early and I think probably the best part that I'm excited about is you're going to be able to join in on those conversations so you can log in to hop in and you'll be able to chat your questions directly to us right within the episode and talk to our guests and we'll be able to incorporate you know what you're thinking and what you're wondering about right into the episode itself and those are all going down well starts on february 17th they all go down at 10 a.m pacific 1 p.m eastern every other thursday and we're gonna have some stellar guests in fact our first guest for February 17th is going to be Thor Friedrichsen. If you don't recognize that name, you should. He founded Quiz Up, which was a massive game back in the day. And then he also founded a gaming studio called Tea Time. And he's working on his third thing now, serial entrepreneur. And he's two for two on creating hyper viral casual mobile games. So yeah. lots to learn there. Maybe he'll just dish. Maybe he'll reveal during that episode what his next huge game is. We can't guarantee that. Asterisk, asterisk. <laughs> Maybe he'll explain how he got two viral hits and has yet to really bring them through on the successful business side of things. So you just find the link in the description if you want to register to come hang out with us. So the talent actually brings up another question I had about you know, it's very competitive space for especially tech side talent, right? And when you're going out to the market and you're trying to bring on engineers, is it difficult competing in that? Just let's bring up Elon Musk, because why not? But, you know, he has he makes claims to being an environmentalist or whatever. But like a company like Tesla is taking obvious big swings at the climate problem, at least as perceived by most of the public and the mass media, right? But like, how do you go out to that same talent market? I mean, maybe you're not competing directly, but like software engineers are software engineers. How do you go to them and be like, look, this is what actually makes a difference. I know that it doesn't sound as thrilling as building an electric sports car or whatever, but like this is the real, the real impactful business. Yeah, we have people from, I would say, almost every single big tech company, every big consultancy that have joined us in the last two months alone. And there's two components to it, I would say, you know, one is definitely the mission. You know, it's one thing. I mean, we've all watched the show Silicon Valley on HBO, right? I mean, it's it is that's the world we live in, right? When companies that are building ad tech or marketing tech are talking about how they're going to change the world. Yeah. Right? 
you know, WeWork was talking about elevating the world's consciousness. Like, please, let's, if there's ever a sign we took it too far, that was it. But in our business, you don't have to do that. It is such a hard line quantitative line to the impact that you can have. We don't go out and say, we are directly responsible for reducing the footprint of our customers. Well, you can see exactly what we're helping bring to the forefront of their disclosure processes, which right. didn't exist before. So the, thankfully, we're in a space and a solution that the mission is crystal clear. And then the second is, you know, we have the benefit of walking behind giants like Tesla, like all of these great companies that have started in the last 10 years, whether they're startups or more established. And culture is king. That's really what's behind this great resignation, I think, is there is mm -hmm. a better way to work. And yeah, there's companies that have figured it out. And I'll tell you, some of the most influential for me have been Tony Hsu at DoorDash or Brian Chesky at Airbnb. They've straddled the line between transparency and performance in their cultures. To be clear, they're not perfect. I don't think such a thing exists as a perfect company, but we're definitely seeing the emergence of a new way of working. And you know, the post-COVID acceleration of going to remote is just one tiny part of that. Yeah, remote plays a part, but it, like you're also talking about culture. And I mean, you know, Chesky, one recent example, you know, Airbnb was, I think, pretty widely lauded without real much criticism for making available their platform for people who wanted to host uh, Afghan refugees, right? And it was a laudable endeavor by them. So is that kind of what you're talking about? Like they're more the mission alignment as well? Or is it is it more just like how people work? Or is it like, I guess, are they one and the same too? Or like values expression, right? Yeah, it's a combination. If you're, you know, a company, whether startup or large, and you have absolute hard stance that this is how people have to work, people value flexibility and agility immensely, right? COVID has taught us that, whether it's the remote work or when you do your work, whatever it may be. But I think there's also, you know, a significant component, as you mentioned, to the mission. And it comes back to data. You guys can tell I like data. There's a massive shortfall of software engineers in the U.S. alone. There's a massive shortfall of cybersecurity professionals. So if you have that much optionality in your career, you know, there's constantly a 2 million, you know, individual supply of software engineers. And if you can make the same amount of money, have the same amount of upside, you know, working at Meta and being tantamount to helping expose underage girls to content they shouldn't be exposed to, or you can go apply your same exact skills, which you're really good and badass at and go work towards a cause like solving climate change, pretty easy choice. Yeah, I mean, especially when like that. I don't think Meta's mission has ever been boiled down so neatly. <laughs> but I can't say you're wrong. I don't know. I'm not going to say you're wrong. <laughs> I had to throw a dagger out there. I, yeah. I think the company does a lot of really great things. I'm excited for them to take us into the metaverse, truly. But man, they've got to fix some stuff. Wow, really? You're excited about going into the metaverse? I was going to ask the same thing. Are you genuinely excited about the metaverse? I'm oh, was that just like time. classic Kentaro dry humor? <laughs> I have been aspiring to be that guy on the floating bed chair from Wally -E for the past decade. <laughs> if you haven't seen that's it, that's the dream. That's my dream. Like, just plug in, have a big gulp in my right hand, and just, you know, watch. <laughs> that's the dream while simultaneously fixing climate change. It's like if I can do both, that's too much to even imagine. Yeah. Wow. That's surprising. But is there a tie-in? Is the metaverse in your long-term roadmap of Persephone? I have no idea how that would happen, but I have to ask now. Wow. Uh, it's not. But I wonder <laughs> how many people, given a microphone with TechCrunch, would have just said yes. <laughs> yeah. And you could have thrown in that you're also offering NFTs. If, uh, you know, you, you can group carbon offsets as an NFT and then the public can purchase it. Mm. Well, funny you mentioned that. We, you know, let's definitely schedule a follow-up to deep dive into our <laughs> NFT metaverse convergence great, ambitions. Great. Yeah, I mean, if you're climate and Web three, uh, <laughs> watch out, everyone wow. else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did. I also I wanted to ask about when you announced your funding round. I think you also announced a free tier. So I, I do want to get more into kind of like just the product strategy behind like. There's the obvious one with SaaS products is like you want to give people a chance to get in with low commitment. But like, what do you envision happening for a customer when they come on and sort of play around with this kind of accounting for carbon footprint in like a free trial? Definitely. And, and in our instance, it's actually not going to be a trial. It's going to be full on what we call in our world scope one through three carbon accounting. So the product led growth motion for us or the freemium version, as some people would know it 
It's all about how do we democratize carbon accounting, which has an extremely high barrier to entry around the technical knowledge required to do carbon accounting. Yeah. And look, this is where I'll give you my classic take on it. There's no company that does freemium out of the good of their hearts. We still have right. a fiduciary duty to generate profits for our shareholders. And if you hear the words democratize, which is also one of the buzziest words in Silicon Valley, democratization to me is just an indication of an industry or a solution that is attacking a really inefficient way of doing something drastically lowering the technical barrier of entry and the cost to do it and that's what we're doing because right now if you want to do high quality carbon accounting and you're a smaller company you're a medium-sized business it's insanely expensive you've got to bring in specialized consultants you're mired in spreadsheets you're always looking 12 months retrospectively it's just a really broken sort of process and that's mostly just because there hadn't been a need to do it in such a high quality and such a high frequency. And so, you know, our freemium motion is really all about we just need to democratize this layer of carbon accounting to everyone as quickly as possible. It's also obviously a huge mission component to that. Right. But there's a huge amount of use cases that are unlocked after the carbon accounting is performed. And that's things like, how do I make decisions to ultimately abate carbon and price that, you know, within my company or within my supply chain? How do I understand what physical climate risk means for my assets and how do I price that into my you know, forward-looking statements and in my budgeting? We're just at the very beginning stages of what's going to be a, a really rich ecosystem of software and data solutions in the climate ecosystem. So it's kind of like a solving the like, you don't know what you don't know problem before customers can progress further down the, the pipeline, right? Yeah. The, the most overused trope in our business is you can't manage what you can't measure. And um, right. that's that's about as clear as you can say it. And I, I also mentioned at the top of the call, and we should actually say, because we keep saying ERP, or I mean, not ERP, ESG. I think people know what ERP is, but ESG we keep saying, and I don't know if everybody knows what that is, but in, yeah, in good writer form, I say it right at towards the end of the call as opposed to at the top of the call. But it stands for environmental, social, and governments. And it encompasses a lot of things, including climate sustainability. But what I also have found since then, because since we talked last time, we ran our space event, TC Session Space, in case people want to go check it out. I worked in a plug. I get to do that, I guess, right? It's our show. But the... Also, Persephone.com slash Web3. Wow. <laughs> Does that go anywhere? Uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyways, like every every company there was talking about ESG and they were all earth observation companies, right? And they see this as their huge, huge opportunity. And that's from the satellite operators and constellation operators down to the data management companies that connect people on earth. Like that's what they're planning for, right? So is there opportunity there for you? How do you work with those companies? Or are they kind of like once removed from sort of your direct line of business? There's going to be huge integration into high quality satellite imagery and observation used for whether it's emissions observations. So think, you know, a refinery or oil and gas wells, you know, how can you monitor those for things like methane leaks, but also deforestation. So great a company. I'm great connections with the founders that Mark Benioff and, uh, and Salesforce and others have invested in is NCX, it's Natural Capital Exchange. They've built software to monitor forests, which have been tagged and allocated for offset purposes, because that's a right. huge challenge. If you're selling somebody offsets predicated on the fact that these trees are going to be around to sequester carbon, you have to have a way to monitor that so that people don't log that forest. Right. Yeah. So that's one instance. And you're, you're going to see there's a huge race right now happening around that. There's a couple of interesting things around that, you know, to penetrate low canopy sort of environments in forestry, for example, like you need low orbit sats with, you know, higher degrees of resolution around their imagery. You need to have infrared capabilities, some of those things that don't exist in existing infrastructure to some degree. But yeah, you're going to see one of the richest data sets that crosses GIS data, IoT data, financial data, all converging to come up with a complete climate picture. Yeah, that's amazing. We actually had, so we had Esri and they were talking about the GIS stuff. And then we had this super small Canadian company called Wyvern, which is doing hyperspectral, which is another huge, like could, because it can capture so many more wavelengths than an optical camera or whatever, you could see the chemical makeup of what's going on on the ground, right? Which would be massively useful for this kind of thing. So it's like another thing that stands to your benefit in that like for the first time ever, people can actually 
get an accurate picture of this. This used to be not just commercially available, right? So if you said, oh, we have this forest and this is the makeup of the forest and it's like these type of trees with this type of density, so it'll offset this much. There was no way to prove that except for take their word for it or maybe like do a drone flyby or like send out somebody to check, right? And count the trees individually or something and take measurements. So nobody was ever doing it. So now all that data is going to be there available. And no, and like anyone can access it. Like me or you could access it, right? We can go on depending on the platform if we have enough cash that month or whatever. So that's another thing that just seems to be a good reason people are now finally thinking about it. It's like, oh, we can actually get caught, right? Yeah. And there's some really cool open source trends around that happening. So Google just finished a multi-year effort in the textile and fashion industry, which has a horrible footprint, if you didn't know that, by the way. Yeah. You know, fast fashion is just absolutely terrible for the environment. And they just basically created this huge high-fidelity emission factor set, which tells you the average carbon intensity of a unit of measure, you know, in this case, say textiles. Wow. They just put it out there for use and consumption. And we're seeing that sort of open source trend by industries pretty consistently. So it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, you're, you're seeing a large scale open source community around these data sets forming, which is going to introduce some unique concepts uh, and, you know, plug Web3. <laughs> but you talked about uh, consumer choice, right? And and cons in consumer choice, once it runs properly informed, becomes even better, right? Like it's like once you can actually just go and find wire cutter, but for ecological footprint, right? Of like, various garment distributors or whatever like that's huge because then you can actually make it it's not just based on like well i did it because i heard they were kind of ethical and like they make claims on instagram that they're ethical or whatever it's like no no i went and checked the site actually jordan this is a product idea for us we should start a okay i'm listening wire cutter for web three? economic impact I, I can't figure out the web three part yet but i also just don't really no, we know can what tokenize something. we can do it we'll just tokenize something count me in on the token sale i'm all in <laughs> okay. yeah I've no i mean you're an investor heads. so sure okay <laughs> Yeah. So a question kind of related to this that I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned it earlier that you imagine there's going to be like a WeWork moment. Are you interested at all in being the propagator of that? Like, is there a time when Persephone you go and like they have a content arm and it's like company XYZ is the worst when it comes to just saying they're ecologically minded, but they're shitty. And like, here's the whole thing exposing them. Is that something you would do? Or is, is that something you would leave to kind of maybe TechCrunch, for instance, or whomever else, right? It's a great and loaded question for us, right? It could destroy our business if we take yeah. that sort of path and expose customers to you know practices that are less than kosher. The really easy answer for us is we just don't do business with those companies. We have right. dropped major companies from our client roster because we've seen that. And we've seen that in the sales cycle and just refuse to even continue engaging wow. there. So yeah, that is for sure going to happen. I think you'll see a decrease quite a bit as this becomes a more mature sort of cycle. But yeah, you know, we we definitely don't want to be, there's a whole other part of our world, which is raters, companies that rate ESG performance of other companies, which is talk about the, just a massive gamut of just graft, holy smokes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't, we don't want to go into that space. We want to be the objective, hard, plain truth disclosure player out there. Yeah, that makes a lot we of sense. We should call that wire cutter Holy Smokes, by the way. That's Holy the name. Smokes? Yeah, I like it. <laughs> what? It feels like it has like a vaping component to it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. I like it. Yeah, but I, I was going to like, that makes a lot of sense too that you wouldn't enter into that because you can see how it's kind of like when this is more insidery crap, but like let's say a media outlet like starts awarding a bunch of things, like sets up a lot of awards they give away yearly and you're like wait what is that isn't that kind of they're suspect about how you grease those wheels or like how so and so people get chosen for that and what the relationships are what you're selling against it i don't want to call it forbes directly but i might as well just call them out now at this point let's do it <laughs> we're edgy holy smokes kantara's doing it i gotta be spicy <laughs> yeah no do all it. my friends at i'm forbes. not gonna do it but you guys <laughs> listen do to it. him we still love you Listen, there are some great people at Forbes. I'm not painting with a with a broad brush here. I'm just saying the business model. Everyone's business model is suspect in media because it's not a business that works. But oh god, wow, it brought us down quick. Kentaro doesn't even have a joke. He's like, yeah, no, for real. It's like no, I'm not in fun. that business. I, I just, I mean, 
It's it's better better to let the journalists roast the journalists. Yeah, I think. What else could I get? Yeah. I think I, one thing I'd like to kind of we're, we're nearly at time, but I do want to hear more about kind of like where you think this market is headed. Like, what is the kind of like next instantiation of a product like this, or what kind of like future products do you see becoming necessary as more companies come on board with this stuff? You know, in the short term, you're going to see a high emphasis on that disclosure and compliance use case. And I think there's sort of a naivete in players in our space that think they're going to rush to help these companies decarbonize. And we sort of abide by the maxim that sunlight is the best disinfectant. You want to drive a big company to change its behavior, first expose that behavior. If you want to jump straight into, I'm going to help you electrify your fleet, I'm going to help you source renewable energy, I'm going to help you apply pressure to your supply chain, and I'm going to help you build green products. That just doesn't work, right? Like systemic change it takes a sort of progressive approach. And the first step in our world is disclosure. After that disclosure use case has been well-established and become sort of a muscle in the enterprise and in financial institutions, you're going to see this next great phase of value creation around sustainability. How can I more systematically produce greener products? How can I systematically access ESG tagged capital that comes with a lower cost of capital? How can I issue green bonds? So you're going to see this, this hard shift. It's kind of a spectrum I see that's on the very left side is compliance focused behavior and on the right side is value creation. You're going to see that shift towards value creation after that base muscle is established to calculate and then disclose consistently. And, and that's what's so exciting about the space. You know, There's some really clear use cases around what is the physical risk of my assets? I mentioned that earlier, but there's going to be stuff that people are imagining and cooking up, which you're not going to be able to imagine. And we've joked about Web3 on here, but there's actually been some really interesting you know, distributed teams formed over the last two to three months alone that are trying to figure out how do we apply you know, crypto ledgers to create fidelity and trust into offset projects and funnel dollars to those you know, I, we joke, I think there's a ton of potential there, but yeah, it's it's the very early days. And if you want any indication that this is here for the big time, you know, Larry Fink at BlackRock recently went on the record and said, it's his opinion that the next 1000 unicorns minted are going to be related to the energy transition and to climate. And wow. I'm certainly inclined to believe him. That's great. Yeah. I think that you brought up a good point there that I hadn't really thought of either. That is that if you rush to the solutioning side of things, you're maybe not fixing the, the problem at all. If a company is doing a bunch of initiatives that on the surface are contributing to their overall footprint, it's like, well, you're ignoring everything else about your business that is actually causing damage because you're not even aware of it, right? You've just rushed to the thing that perhaps satisfies current regulation or perhaps looks good in the public press, but like doesn't necessarily address your actual core problems, right? Exactly. I always liken it to dieting, right? So if somebody comes along and gives you a magic diet pill, if you remember back in the day, hydroxycut had ephedrine in it and man, you could cut weight real fast because you lost your appetite, but that was not sustainable and you didn't fix the underlying patterns of probably an unhealthy diet. Same thing for a company. If the unhealthy diet in this metaphor is behavior that's high emissions, are you going to retool your company and your supply chain and your operating procedures to be greener over the long haul? Yeah, that hydroxychloroquine that brings back memories. Maybe maybe dates me too, but I remember because it was like super popular for a while, and then yeah, the ephedrine thing came out, and it was like, yeah, you know what else is great for losing weight? Speed, but you don't just do speed. <laughs> <laughs> I also uh, I also love that I'm old enough now to where I can make those type of jokes. Uh, it's awesome and and i would love to unpack your hydroxy cut stories at some point listen it was a friend it was a friend <laughs> well thanks very much katara i mean amazing amazing to chat with you again also amazing that this is our second time and i had just as much fun if not more fun Me than too. the first time so appreciate that yeah good yeah. on you katara yeah thanks again for having me uh let's do it again i'll invite you guys to my <laughs> podcast next time Yes. Spoiler, I don't have a podcast. But Yet. Web3. Yeah, it, it's... Let's do one on Web3 and call it Holy Smoke. <laughs> there we go. I have to go now. I have to build a ledger-based <laughs> podcast platform. Yeah, get started on the math. As far as I understand it, there's a lot of math under under that. It's hella so... mathy, yeah. <laughs> it's the, it's the... I feel also weird that my compliment was like, I can bear to talk to you twice. So I like, however you want to reframe that. 
I love that. That uh, <laughs> to be more positive. one of my co-founders, Kim, would resonate with that highly. She, we've been working together for five years, and she still tells me that four times a week. So it's the highest <laughs> compliment for me. Cool. There we go. Nailed it. Yeah, I'll just leave it with private equity is one of my most important client segments. I apologize if I've offended any of my private equity overlord <laughs> clients. Um, Talk to my. We love you. That's all I have to say. <laughs> you think what you do is great. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> ending for the show. <laughs> All right, Jordan. So as I mentioned, not in the intro, but shortly into our conversation, we did re-record with Kantaro, which meant that we got twice the time with him. We usually get with founders. Did that change your kind of opinion of Kantaro? Did you feel closer to him? I didn't feel closer to him, but I maybe felt like I get him a little bit more. Like I appreciate him more Yeah, because he had the same knife's edge wit and kind of boldness across both takes. That's right. He was very consistent, which is hard to do if, if you're doing a put on. That was That's real Kantaro exactly. is who we're getting. Yeah. That's who he is. Yeah. Because if he just came for take one and was like, had his chest puffed out and was ready to take on, you know, VC and all the different things that he did. And then that wasn't the real him. He wouldn't have been able to do it so well the second time around. If anything, he exceeded expectations in terms of kind of going for it. Yeah. So I like how he prefaces his spicy moments, too. So, you know, they're coming. It gives you a set. Yeah. He's like, get ready. Uh oh, <laughs> here I come. Yeah. What, what did you think about Persephone and then the kind of the overall position of like the climate economy and greenwashing? I know he was talking a lot about. Pretty big question there, Daryl. Loading me I up. I know, I am. Well, I mean, I think that what I found most interesting and kind of what got me thinking about how I look at other companies and other founders was twofold. One, Persephone is a story of amazing timing. Right. Yeah. This could have been built 10 years ago. It could be built 10 years I think it was. That's the funny thing about it. Because we've had a couple of cycles of this green revolution thing. And people definitely attempted the first time around. But I think it wasn't the right time, right? To your point. Like the data All wasn't right. there. So Yeah. And I might like eat my words, right? Maybe like the version of Persephone that launches five years from now will be far more successful. I don't know. But like it feels like based on what's happening in the regulatory landscape, this is it, right? Like this is the moment where something like this could be really a game changer, could really take off. And the second piece that I took away from this is the defensibility of the team and how important yeah. that is. You know, like VCs talk about, what is it? Like market team fit or product team fit. Right. This is a great example of that where you have someone who is interested in the green side of things, right? And like the sustainability side is a mission, but can speak the language of the people who maybe aren't and really kind of help them frame why Persephone is important. And, you know, I think that that's an interesting facet to look at when you're trying to understand a startup because the idea itself is not revolutionary. It's not, you know, even really that special. Right. It's this combination of timing and team that has made Persephone really special and promises to be successful. So I thought that piece was really interesting in the way he broke that down. Yeah. I mean, it is worth stepping back and thinking about like what his, we talked about his background and, you know, how that influences how he sees things. Like he's a markets nerd, right? Like he loves that type of finance. And it means that his approach is very much reliant on that. Like his approach to this is like, solve it like big finance would solve it or solve it like the SEC would solve it, right? So we kind of took for granted like that is the way to do it in the conversation. I'm sure other people have different perspectives, but he's very convincing that that is the way to do it. Like when he says that capitalism created the climate crisis and that's what's going to fix it, that's a statement that is... I think it's pretty controversial. It would be controversial in a different context. It wasn't controversial in the moment, but like it's almost the same as saying in a different, totally different frame of reference, like capitalism created the U.S. healthcare crisis and capitalism is going to fix it, right? And I think you'd get a lot more people just immediately being like, oh, wait a minute, what? How do you think that's going right, to happen? Right, right. Although, like, now that you say it out loud, it sounds much more promising than the government doing it. Well, that I mean, that's, that's again, the... the, the <laughs> The eternal the controversy. American perspective is that it is always better for corporates than the government to do it, right? Whereas other places around Not the world don't like think it's that. better, but like maybe more realistic because we've just lost.
lost such faith. Yes, I think that's the the issue, right? Because it's become so reified that like, oh, the government is bad at doing things and inept, and then everyone else is better. If you go other places in the world, they don't necessarily accept that as a ground truth, right? Of course. But anyways, in the moment, talking to him, I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. This makes sense. And I do think in an American context, it probably does make the most sense. Yeah. It's an approach that I think we could have had more debate on. But again, it's just like one of those things where it's like, Kantaro is very convincing on this. And I think that's, that really benefits him when he's going into these conversations with investors. You don't realize until it's too late that you maybe want to argue with right? him a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> You're like, he's already got it here. Uh, yeah, he's got my I money. I think about I don't it know. for another- <laughs> But yeah, he was great. And I was glad we got the chance to talk to him again, actually, even though, you know, it was it was not an intentional thing, but it ended up being a great conversation that I think, you know, just kind of like built on stuff that we had already raised in the first conversation. But I think we got into more depth here. And I think, honestly, the benefit of a couple of months meant that I had a better understanding of this problem, too. So I feel like I was more informed. It was one of those things where it's like, oh, oh, no, I didn't do any of my homework and the test is today, and then you get to class, and it's like, well, you know, a huge blizzard means that school is shut down. So you've got We're another couple turn days. Turn this into a quiz that doesn't count towards your grade, <laughs> yeah. and then we'll do the test later. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm never properly prepped for an episode, so I felt the same. But actually, I felt like I had more prep because we did it yeah, once. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, if you agree with us, regardless of whether you agree with us or not, you should go rate us. Jordan, yeah. this is your How turn. Many stars? Your turn. <laughs> Five stars is what we're looking for. Yeah. I can remember it. And, and leave us a review too. We love those. Yeah, leave us a review and just tell us like, what's your favorite thing about Jordan? And what's your, this is just a, prom, a writing prompt for you in case you're feeling yeah, like, where do I start? Use found language. Yeah, yeah. Use that. Yeah, do a stanza that has, I don't remember how to do it. Write a haiku. <laughs> But I mean, whatever it is that calls your heart to listen to us by the very end of this episode, which is where we're at, then you obviously like us enough to just pop in. Yeah. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch News Editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Managing Editor Jordan Crook. We are produced by Ashad Kulkarni and edited and produced by Maggie Stamets. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us at 510-936-1618 and leave us a voicemail. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to fill out our listener survey at bit.ly slash found listener survey. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.